How do we decide how we're governed? What can't a government do? Who gets to decide what the government does? And where is it all written down? Why, in a constitution, of course. But, oh wait, does Britain even have one? You're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. Most of us vaguely know what a constitution is. It's the basic rules about how we do government. And some of us might even vaguely remember that there was a big spate of constitution writing somewhere near the end of the 18th century when big revolutions ended up with written constitutions. Uh, most of us think about these as something that most modern states have, although perhaps we also vaguely know that Britain doesn't have one in that sense. We might even know, or we might worry, that if Scotland leaves the UK, we might just have to write one down. So where do constitutions actually come from? Who was driven to write them and why? Why do they appear in these vast numbers just as we begin to enter modernity? And what do they have to do with war? Hello, my name is Linda Colley. I'm a professor of history at Princeton University. Uh, and that's where I am at the moment. And Linda's new book, The Gun, The Ship and the Pen, takes on just those questions. I think we can jump into just speaking about the book, which I think is really fantastic and incredibly far-reaching. I think the, the best way into it, because this is a topic that's not necessarily hugely familiar, I think, to especially a lot of British listeners. I think I'll start by, I'll give a, a view that's kind of almost sort of parodic in its simplicity, which forms a kind of common sense when we talk about constitutions. So you start by saying something like, so the 18th century, mostly near the end of it, you get a sort of spate of writing of these constitutions, which mostly happens um, after revolutions. So we think especially of the American and the French. And these are important because they, they mark a change in the way that people are thinking about you know, what status and what rights that people might have, what duties people have, um, and especially people, citizens who are governed by that state. And so these are, and you can tell from that word citizens, these are also very closely allied with sort of democratic and secular and small r republican sentiments. And uh, these people hold all sorts of ideas about equality and the capacity of human beings. Actually, in fact, the capacity mostly of men, uh, in fact, for self-government. Um, and so they, they represent a sort of partial or a total break in some places, but mostly a partial break with, with absolutism and with monarchy. They, they limit unaccountable personal power, right? And so it's tied up very much idea with the idea of, of progress, and it's, it's very, very closely tied up to the Enlightenment. We can think about it. Uh, we can think about that period, I guess, especially that peak uh, near the end of it, as, as really quite distinct from anything that went before. And so these constitutions also represent a sort of new phase in the historical unfolding of forms of human government, self-government. So what's wrong with that story? What's, what's missing from it? Well, that's part of the story. But only part. My book is about a transformation. It's not just a political transformation. It's a cultural transformation, uh, a transformation about communications. But constitutions have a much longer and more complex history. There are very early constitutions in classical times. But what you're seeing really from the 1750s, in other words, even before the American Revolution, is the emergence of a rather different political constitution, a single document constitution, which talks about rights as well as constraints on government, which is increasingly mass produced, uh, taking advantage of the fact that by now, literacy is spreading in many parts of the world, so are printing presses. And so governments, and not just Republican governments, increasingly monarchies as well, have an interest in mass producing these texts, because clearly at early times, it, you couldn't mass produce because there wasn't print. And even if you had done, uh, most people couldn't read. 
So if you want these documents to serve as a new kind of contract with your people, then certain technological and literacy changes are needed as well. I wonder if one of the things that we should sort out, because these things can be so protean is that we should say, you know, what actually is a constitution? Because I think there are, you know, you know, some listeners will know there's kind of, uh, you know, there are these almost opposite definitions. So, so on the one hand, there's a sense of it being a sort of fundamental law, a kind of basic law, a law that stands behind the law and is therefore quite difficult to change. And then there's a sort of other sort of odd school of people who think about a constitution as being, you know, something that almost emerges from like the natural disposition of a nation or something like that. Um, so, so which of these ideas is prominent at the time? Uh, you know, why is there a concern about writing constitutions at this point? What's emerging in the mid 18th century is much closer to the fundamental law idea. Indeed, when the King of Sweden issues his constitution in 1772, it specifically says, this is a fundamental law to which the king, as well as male subjects, must swear allegiance. Uh, it may contain laws, but it's on a different level from other laws. There's a sense that, no, this is not natural. And uh, Rousseau says this, picking up on the idea that uh, the word constitution at that time is often applied to health, to the state of the body. Um, but uh, Rousseau says, not a political constitution, because a body, your health, is something you're born with and you keep until you die. It's the same body. But these kind of constitutions are the creation of men and they cater to their needs and therefore they can change at different points in time. So Rousseau's idea is that not just is this fundamental, but it's also manufactured, it's artificial, it's not natural. It's interesting, you know, there's this line, and I think it's especially interesting when we're thinking in a kind of an American context. So there's a quite famous line about um, the American Constitution being an experiment in government. So I wonder if you have a sense of, you know, are people thinking about these things as simply works in progress? Or are they, they thinking they're going to change and respond to the, the kind of states that they create? Well, some people are. Um, I mean, Thomas Jefferson says, look, uh, you know, again, these are man-made devices that cater to the people. Therefore, as societies change, it's quite natural that the Constitution will change. And he thought probably every 17, 18 years or so. Um, I should say, uh, particularly in the United States, I know this because I, I, I was on the TV this morning in America suggesting that perhaps the US Constitution should be amended. And I got quite a few rude emails uh, from people who didn't like that because, you know, there, there is a view uh, in some countries, particularly the United States, that this is like the Ten Commandments engraven in stone. Um, but Jefferson didn't see that that way. And in fact, his idea that constitutions should change every 17, 18 years, um, well, social scientists have established that in fact, that is the average longevity of most political constitutions since 1800. And in, indeed the degree of longevity is dropping. Uh, these are ubiquitous documents now, but they tend not to last all that long. I think that's one of the things that's interesting because maybe we can come on to talk about it a bit because, because the American Constitution it so profoundly shapes the way that one thinks about these documents and the effects they have on the kind of states and the forms of government. And yet there's this whole other side of, of, of these less long-lived documents, these less long-lived constitutions that, that really comes out in the book. And I think it, you know, I, I think it actually, I mean, it really did reshape my thinking. And so I wonder if we could say a bit before we, before we go on about something that happens 
when these things start to be written down and people start thinking about, you know, uh, you know, who can vote, for instance, because one of the things that you explore to great length, actually, towards the end of the book is, is that, is that what, it, what it is about these documents that seem to empower people, that have these, this concern with uh, empowerment and self-government and, and these kind of apparently lofty ideas, but, but also seem to record the, pre- not, well, not just record the prejudices of their own day, but actually in some ways to sort of harden and enhance them even to go beyond them so I'm thinking particularly here in terms of gender and race I think that at all times uh, and this you know goes against the sort of rosy view that some people have of constitutions uh, these things are not just about rights almost always they are there to enable different forms of power as well Uh, to include and often to exclude. Uh, And you see that again in the United States, where initially the state constitutions sometimes don't mention the gender issue. I mean, New Jersey, where I am, uh, initially its state constitution allows a certain number of women to vote. But pretty soon uh, the state says, Big mistake. No, let's make it more specific. Voting is for men. And of course, increasingly, the state constitution says not just voting is only for men, it's only for white men. Uh, And one sees different kinds of emphases. And, And this is something that becomes particularly widespread as the 19th century goes on, uh, and you get constitutions adopted not just in Euro-America, but in different continents as well, partly because so many rulers want to link the right to vote with the duty of military service. And it's generally assumed at that time that military service is obviously male, And anyway, you want to make it clear what a privilege voting is uh, that men, real men, can do, but obviously not women. Um, And so, you know, increasingly after 1850 in parts of South America, in Japan, for instance, in their 1889 constitution, Um, Not a terribly democratic constitution, but still it's the first one in East Asia and it absolutely spells out the duty of military service and and not just conscription, but everybody's got to do some time in the militia. That's the point of being a male Japanese. Well, that's a really nice way into the, the next thing I was thinking about, which is one of the things that's so startling about your account is that I, I'm just very used to thinking about constitutions as something that you know, the big phases of constitution writing, something that happened, you know, after a revolution or some kind of huge, cha- you know, the big 18th century ones, French, American. And then, you know, as you say, to, to you know, after the end of World War One, the decline of these monarchies, of course, you get the sort of German revolution and you get Weimar. But but. You know, this leads on to so your argument, which I think is really striking, is that there's a is that there's a very very close connection between war and the writing of constitutions and a type of war in particular, in fact, that you talk about, which is hybrid warfare. So why is it that that it's war rather than revolution that occupies so central a place in your thinking? Well, of course, revolutions in practice are always wars. Um, you know. All revolutions are, at the very least, civil wars between people who want change, people who don't. Uh, Very often, too, they are fought against uh, an external force as well. I mean, the American Revolutionary War would be a case in point. The French Revolutionary War, ditto. So I think there's kind of notion that, that revolutions are sort of somehow nice, whereas war is nasty. Um, Well, of course, wars are nasty, but uh, to live through revolutions are often nasty too. So while revolutionary wars feature in this book, I wanted to make clear that war more broadly uh, can factor into constitutions too, and often does. 
And one of the reasons why these new kinds of constitutions are becoming more prominent from the mid 18th century is that the regularity of really big wars is increasing. Uh, and this goes on right up to the Second World War and beyond, uh, which is, of course, the period in which constitutions proliferate. Um, why is this? Well, because big wars, you don't just need armies, you often need sophisticated navies. Navies are always extremely expensive. And you can't economize. I mean, with an army, you can you know, let free the prisoners from your jails, sweep up the poor and put them in uniform and just fling them at the cannon, which often happened. But navies, uh, you know, you need technicians, you need raw materials, you need uh, sophisticated shipyards, uh, you need to victual them and sail them and so on. And the great powers by the mid-18th century, um, particularly Britain, Spain, and France, are having to channel more and more money into their fighting navies. Therefore, they have to raise taxes, never a popular thing to do. And the need to raise taxes as well as raising men can be can lead to new constitutions. In some cases, states say, oh, well, you know, if we're going to do this, then we have to give males something in return. But sometimes that doesn't happen and the populace rebels, uh, as in the American colonies, or, you know, governments become bankrupt, as in France. Um, the French Revolution happens because basically the French monarchy is now bankrupt. And one of the reasons, the main reasons why the French monarchy is bankrupt is that France has fought too many big wars and has tried to build up a huge navy far too quickly. And it just has run out of cash. It cannot govern. We'll come on to talk about Britain because it's obviously an un, you know, interesting, unusual case. But it, it, of course, it also sounds like the case with ship money, and and that that that's the thing that you know that really sets into the most. It sets into motion Charles the First's kind of unfortunate end. Well, absolutely, yeah. Um, and you know, interesting um, flurry of new constitutional texts in the 1640s and 50s after the collapse of Charles I's government. Again, as you say, uh, because of tax and war and so forth. I wonder, I wonder if you think, I mean, because these are, you know, these are one of the things, if you're familiar with the sort of intellectual history of the em emergence of these constitutions, it's usually it's told as a kind of, you know, encyclopedists, French theorists, they start to think up these wonderful ideas. Um, and we can often see, you know, it can often seem these accounts are quite unmoored from economic history. Uh, and one thing that goes into this is, you know, these people are certainly reading the classics and they're thinking about these kind of Roman texts. And are they picking up from, from there that there's a sense of, of, of interrelationship between military service and citizenship? Or is this, is this something that's new? I think that, I mean, the classics play a part among some constitutionalists, uh, the making of the Corsican Constitution of 1755 by Pascal Paoli. We know he's deeply versed in uh, classical histories and texts, uh, and it's clearly giving him some ideas. But I think that there's a shift in this idea about links between citizenship and military service. In classical times, one sign that you are a citizen is that you have the duty of military service. But increasingly, what is being argued from the mid 18th century is the other point, that if you do military service, that may win you citizenship. That is what the French Republican regimes in the 1790s are saying, because they need to bulk up their army. 
uh, to defend the revolution and to take it into other lands. So that's what they do. It, it's not just saying French citizens have a duty to fight. It's if you fight, you join the ranks of French citizens and you get a vote. I'm totally fascinated by these sorts of transformation. So we should move on to talk about Haiti, in fact, because one of the things that I really admire about the book is it it gets out of a kind of very conventional way of, of telling the story. It's very, very attentive, I think. And, you know, especially for me, there was a, a whole range of stories about the constitution and about the making of constitutions in the Pacific world that I knew, I knew nothing about. But uh, if we stay in the Atlantic for, for the moment, Haiti is often... Uh, a, a touchstone for you through the book. And so can we talk a little bit about the, the Haitian Revolution and constitution making here among this this first slave rebellion, this first uh, uh, overthrow of a, a slave state? But is there a way that Haiti fits into this story of military service and war and constitution making? Uh, and, and, and does the fact of enslavement bring out other contexts? Certainly, the Haitian Revolution is... Well, for a start, it's caught up with war in all sorts of ways. Not only are uh, not only is war happening in what becomes Haiti, uh, previously Saint Domingue, but the slave rebellion would arguably uh, have been repressed had France not been caught up in fighting a much bigger war. You know, France cannot focus on bringing its most profitable sugar colony, Saint-Domingue, back to obedience because it's got its soldiers and its sailors and doing so many other things. And also I think war is, uh, wider warfare is factoring into the rebellion because many of its leaders have had military training. Uh, they've been snapped up by the Spanish army or the French army. One of them has even fought in the American Revolutionary War. They've learned military skills in part from these Western wars. Um, some Africanists also suggest that some of the slaves may have learned warfare techniques in West Africa from where they were shipped into uh, this terrible bondage. But that's a, another debate. You know, this is such a massive event, which, as you say, has been much discussed. And when Toussaint Louverture issues the first constitution here in 1800, it is a kind of declaration of independence as well, because not only does he issue it, but he has it printed. And that really infuriates Napoleon, because, of course, once it's in print, other people can look at it. And so there's a whole spate of these new Haitian constitutions from 1800, uh, and they go on and on and on. Pretty authoritarian constitutions, I should say. Um, I mean, the, the, the new Haitian ruling elite, uh, they have to be tough guys. Right. Well, I mean, this is one of the arguments that you make, which I find really interesting, was that it's, you know, it's so typical to think of the, the political history of Haiti after its revolution. You know, it often comes in for this, this kind of greater degree of, of con condescension, and, you know, as if it just simply... You know, degenerates, you know, say, oh, well, you know, you get this, it's just a, a couple of years down the line before you get Henri Christophe setting himself up as a, a black monarch um, in, in Haiti. And there's a, you know, the, you, you have some amazing visuals in the book, which are these kind of rather unpleasant European cartoons, sort of fascinating, but very unpleasant, of Henri Christophe, who's the new kind of declares himself king of Haiti, um, you know, depicted alongside the other monarchs of Europe, you know, rather kind of pathetic before him. One of the arguments that, that you make, I think, is, is that you have this, this constitution that develops, and you say it's typical to think of it as being overthrown or it collapses in this kind of transformation into the first Haitian monarchy. But you suggest that we should think of it in a slightly different way. Yeah, I mean, I think all these early Haitian constitutions 
are really remarkable and have a very radical effect because as people recognize at the time, these are constitutions drafted and planned by people who are not white. People who in many cases have formerly been slaves. This is a stupendous act and it attracts widespread attention. And even Henri Christophe, who in many ways is a monster and an extravagant monster. I mean, you know, the poor guys and women working in the fields still can't have experienced much difference from their previous servitude. And instead, all the profits that they're helping to make by still growing sugar or whatever, um, Henri Christophe uses to build extraordinary palaces and castles and so forth and to uh, invent a peerage and have a crown made for himself and so forth. And at one level, this seems obscene. But of course, again, this is extraordinarily radical. I mean, this guy has at one stage been an illiterate butcher. He's now claiming to be a monarch, a hereditary monarch, moreover, and indeed is in correspondence with the British monarch, George III. So, yeah, this is a revolutionary act, and I wanted to make that clear, partly to point out that constitutions, if they had been confined to republics, would never have swept the world as quickly as they did because as late as the First World War, which is when my book formally stops, you know, monarchy is the norm in most continents outside the Americas. And Henri Christophe shows not just a different kind of radicalism that is specific to Haiti, but he also illustrates this wider point that monarchs, different kinds of monarchs, can use these devices for their own purposes. And that's very important for the spread of them. I mean, I think this is so interesting because, again, I, I habitually think of constitutions as having to do with republics, right? And th- their documents are about the founding of republics. But, you know, as you point out, this is, you know, it's, I wouldn't call it the exception, but it's certainly not necessarily the dominant feature, is it? No, it can't be. It can't be because, as I say, monarchs and emperors um, are all over the place and not just in Europe by any means. But just in that that Haitian context, you know, there, there's something about, is there something about the kind of content of these documents? Is there something distinctive? You know, I, I mean, the, the, I assume that the Haitian constitution takes on you know, various parts of the kind of zeitgeist of, of constitution writing. It's all, the, the, it's in kind of conversation with the documents that are being written in Europe and in European colonies. But are, are there distinctive features that emerge from, its, from it as something, you know, that, that is written in the context of a former slave, you know, by former uh, enslaved people? Yeah, because even... Um, I mean, this is partly why Napoleon gets so cross when Toussaint has his constitution printed. Um, By declaring Haitian citizens of their own country, he is therefore saying they are not slaves anymore because they are citizens. Now, admittedly, the working lives of most Haitians was not probably all that different. Nonetheless, they were not slaves. They were now in name, on paper, in print, citizens. And that is a very important innovation. Um, And it's going to be picked up later in the 19th century, um, you know, by other places like Liberia, in Africa, which is a a, a place created by United States reformers for free blacks from the United States. They can go to Liberia. They can set up their own state. And in the 1840s, Liberia, again, creates its own constitution. And this time explicitly says, we don't want the white man's help, thank you very much. We can make our own constitution. 
Um, and again, you know, I'm sure Haiti is part of this memory uh, that a constitution is an emblem. It says that you are an independent polity. It says that you can legislate for yourself. And increasingly, it comes to be read as a document that also speaks to modernity. But this is what modern states do. And therefore, if you can issue a constitution, um, you can say, well, you know, uh, we are not a people to be colonized uh, or invaded. We have made it clear that we are our own state and a modern state hands off. I think we should pick up on something that we've touched on already, but that's really, really fascinating in your book, which is print culture and the culture, the cult, really, of the document. Because it seems to me that there are there are kind of two dimensions to this. Because on the one hand, eventually, you know, in the lives of the Constitution, I'm thinking particularly of the American context here, these documents come to be you know, almost literally treated as kind of sacred relics, you know, because they're made of words and, and, and often not that many words. They're, they're very, very, very copyable, right? So they're very, very easily transmitted. And there's a wonderful little vignette you have about the new uh, Irish Free State, which puts its constitution at the front of a, a kind of printed anthology of constitutions in 1922, saying, you know, look, we do it too. Um, you know, we're part of this. So what role do these two things play? You know, thinking especially now, kind of print culture seems to be such a key part of the story of how these things flourish and how they come to influence each other. Yeah, I, I think the importance of print is is just vast and, and in many ways. As I say, constitutions are not just about domestic purposes. It's to advertise your existence and identity to the world at large. And of course, print allows you to do that. Uh, you can send out copies to different parts of the globe. They can be translated and so on and so forth. And really from the 1790s onwards, clever publishers realize that this is a growing trend. And they say, well, you know, instead of just publishing single constitutions, we're going to do omnibus volumes so that policy nerds can look at them. But also other constitution makers can buy these omnibus volumes, and as they still do today, and, and, and do a kind of pick and mix. You know, they can say, oh, you know, that provision in Paraguay's constitution, we like that. Or, oh, what a nice turn of phrase in Poland. Um, let's incorporate that. And so what you get... Uh, and you can see it, as I described very clearly in the Norwegian constitution of 1814, the, the second oldest one to survive. And the legislators there, because they're being threatened by a Swedish invasion, again, war is crucial here, have to produce a constitution really, really quickly. So they depend on these printed texts. And we know that not only do they take provisions, in some cases they're taking whole paragraphs because they've got to get this document in being in print before the Swedish army arrives, which they do. Um, and this becomes a, a very important token of Norway's continuing distinct identity, even though it is now linked with Sweden. I mean, you mentioned sort of policy nerds then, and I can I can look at my bookshelves and think, you know, yeah, I know what sort of people these would be. Um, uh, uh, but do we know, do we know if there were wider readerships for these kind of anthologies of, of these printed documents? I'm just thinking here that there's a really, uh, I think, I mean, you actually I think reference him at one point. Um, sort of offhand, but there's a, there's an incredible study done by Benedict Anderson of the kind of these these networks of print communication of 19th century radical literature. And so, do we have a sense that there are people reading these documents and becoming political actors, or saying, you know, we we should have one of these and and, and thinking about how they'll do it? Yeah, some radicals are doing it, um, including you know quite plebeian radicals like. Thomas Spence, a sort of Scottish Anglo activist who, 
yeah, devises his own extremely freaky but elaborate constitutions, having read examples from France and elsewhere. But also, people become quite interested in these texts, particularly male people, I should say, as a kind of cultural exercise. You know, it's Sunday afternoon, it's pouring with rain, um, you you haven't got anything to do. And so you think, well, you know, last year I went to Sicily. Now that's a place that needs a constitution. I've got three hours before dinner. Let's draft one. Um, and it was one of the things I found uh, looking at the culture of constitutions. Um, how much, you know, just as you would think sometimes, oh, I must start uh, an do a diary, or I must start and do this piece of journalism. People do quite often, but they're overwhelmingly male, draft a constitution, which they cannot seriously think is going to be implemented. But it's a sort of interesting, creative and intellectual exercise. There's sort of sentimental uses to which these documents are put. And, you know, I was thinking about the way it seems that in the absence of a kind of constitutional document, like these founding documents, you know, obviously they developed into such a cult in, in America, but, you know, quite late. I mean, in Britain, no such document exists, but you can see at various points there's this sort of, this sort of hunger for it. And there are, you know, there are parts of the story that, 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 you know, that you have people who are sort of reaching for the Magna Carta, a sort of symbolic form. Just every so often these days in in the courts, you'll you'll get people standing sort of standing up and saying, "Oh, I don't recognise the judicial system, and because of rights, I have rights given to me by Magna Carta." And, and you know, and this is not just you know spontaneous; it's a sort of kind of worked out online conspiracy, it's a sort of legal conspiracy theory. Obviously, it's nonsense, but it's so striking that these things that, that there's this sort of touchstone document that has continued to be in the obvious in in, in the absence of an obvious substitute you know for some reason you know, for you know, for some reason they don't go for the the kind of cromwell era instrument of governance but the magna carta carta becomes this kind of you know sentimental touchstone document in britain yeah um and of course most people haven't read magna carta um, but then statistics seem to suggest that most Americans haven't read the American Constitution either. It's, it's got an emblematic significance and it is constantly being reinterpreted. And it's very striking that in the mid 18th century, when some places are beginning to create new major constitutional texts in Britain, you get much more conscious reinterpretation of Magna Carta. You get new editions. The, the brand new British Museum uh, puts a, a copy of the medieval text in a glass case and says, this is the foundation of our liberties. Um, conservatives start complaining that people are assuming that Magna Carta is of greater importance than what Parliament says. Uh, and you can just feel, you know, in other words, Britain is not immune from this rising move towards new iconic texts, but it's having to express that desire in other ways. Right. And I, I, I mean, this is super interesting, I think. And, you know, obviously, I, in recent years, there's been kind of more attention paid domestically to... To Britain's sort of odd status, and parenthetically, I you know I find it quite interesting that a lot of you know avid historians and theorists of constitution are British, partly because we don't have one. So these are, are kind of fascinating documents. So yeah, I mean, I say we don't have one. Of course, I should more correctly say that we don't have a codified, documented constitution uh, uh, in the sense that that these other states do. So, what is it? that prevents that historically from breaking out in Britain? Because the, 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 the explanation you might reach for a kind of folk explanation for it is, oh, you know, well, we didn't have what, what people used to call a kind of proper bourgeois revolution. But, you know, if, if constitutions aren't always or, or, or indeed, you know, often Republican, then Britain actually does appear a kind of strange case. So why does it turn out that way here? 
Well, it's partly contingencies, as shown by, you know, the leveler uh, proto-constitutions in the 1640s, and then, as you say, uh, the instrument of government of 1653, happening after the civil wars in England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland. It's not that these things don't happen in these islands. The problem is, and of course, uh, after another revolution in 1688, you get the Bill of Rights of 1689. So there's a lot of paper constitutional creativity in what used to be called the British Isles. But after 1688, there's no more successful foreign invasion of the island of Great Britain. Uh, there's no more civil war in the island of Great Britain. Ireland's story is rather different, of course, after 1916. And there isn't a major military defeat or invasion. Um, but I suspect that if the First World War had gone differently or the Second World War had gone differently and Germany had invaded, the current status quo had lost legitimacy and glimmer, uh, perhaps the monarchy had been driven out, then I, you know, I don't quite see why in that counterfactual we wouldn't have had a codified constitution. And at the moment, it does seem to me that you know, it's within the bounds of possibility that at least parts of these islands will get new constitutions. We know the Scottish Nationalist Party have said, well, if we secede, if we form our own nation, we are having a written constitution. If Northern Ireland rejoins the rest of Ireland, they're going to have to create a new Irish constitution, which is one reason why some jurists in Dublin really do not want a reunification of Ireland. I mean, they know that as patriotic Irishmen, they ought to support it, but they also know it's going to be an awful lot of work. Now, if this happens, if Scotland gets a written constitution, if Northern Ireland peels off what is just left with England and Wales. Are people going to say, well, the existing system clearly is working terribly well. Um, we don't need a written constitution. Who knows? But I think we are in a time of flux. There are arguments that can be made for a non-codified constitution. One of which is, you know, it can allow you greater flexibility. You can suddenly decide to change the rules. And it's much harder if you've got a codified constitution to do that. But it does seem to me, you know, the exceptionalism which says, oh, why should we need a written constitution? Well, the fact that, you know, almost every country on the face of the globe has one, uh, the idea that we are so singular, we don't remotely need one, perhaps ought to be looked at again. Right, I agree. I mean, there's a, there's a vein of, of English exceptionalism. I think it really is English exceptionalism that creeps into this, this, this conversation quite often. I'm thinking here especially of the kind of writing about the Constitution that comes a bit later than the period we're thinking about. It's this who, who draws on writings by people like Badgett in, in the 19th century. And he... You know, he's a journalist and he, his you know, classic book on the Constitution, he praises, you know, he says, he, his fondness for it is basically that it's not really very democratic, that, you know, there's a kind of secret Constitution that operates inside, you know, it operates basically like a committee of businessmen, this sort of secret constitutional order inside it, you know, this kind of uh, 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 putatively kind of unwritten form. And, you know, I mean, it strikes me for one thing, it really isn't enormously democratic, which is probably quite a bad thing um, so i wonder if if you know because there is a counter history in britain as well and so you mentioned the levelers there and obviously you know we've mentioned and alluded to these these documents that kind of get written during cromwell's tenure and then there are other things that happen around that time you know really interesting documents you know uh, uh, recovered by historians uh, uh, of political thought really who who revived it which is uh 
Harrington has a speculative attempt to kind of draft what is basically a very thinly veiled document for an English Republic. But you know, a bit later, what about that kind of dissenting and radical tradition? You know, into the 18th century, you talk a bit about Tom Paine. And do these these dissenting voices recognise something that's problematic about the sort of failure of this kind, this, the, the failure of this, this thinking to break out in Britain? I think as long as a country is perceived as being on the way up, as it were, um, it's harder for radicals to make the case unless some kind of emergency like a war or a civil war or an invasion or catastrophic military defeat happens. But, you know, 18th and 19th century Britain, by some criteria, are on the roll. Um, you know, rising industrialization, population growth, probably by the 1860s, by far the richest polity on the globe. So if you want to legitimize the existing system, you can do relatively easily, and radicals have a harder time of it. But what you do get even so is you get these in the 19th and early 20th century, you get these great reform acts, 1832, 1867, and so forth. And it's interesting that some contemporaries regard these as a kind of written constitution. You have rewritten the state on paper. Now, of course, they're not constitutions, but still you've got new iconic texts. What has happened since 1918, 1919, with women coming into the franchise, is far fewer of these great iconic texts. That doesn't mean we don't have constitutional documents. We do. We have too many in Britain. But it's all done in a rather piecemeal way, like the devolution statements for, you know, put in by under Tony Blair's premiership. Um, and I do think the issue of devolution and devolving power and the need for some kind of constitutional tie-up go together, partly because people don't understand the system. You know, it's so complex, so multi-layered. I mean, could you, could I answer no, uh, explain to a foreigner in a few sentences how the UK government works? Sadly, um, that would put it, uh, but, you know, in more constructive ways than that. And I think that if the four parts of the UK are to stay together, which they might not, more work has got to be done on creating a more explicitly federal system. And if you have an explicitly federal system, you almost invariably need a codified constitution to spell it all out, to make clear who has power over which parts of government, uh, the relationship between the component parts and so forth. And at the moment, the constitutional system in the UK is inchoate. And when you get defenders of that saying, oh, well, um, you know, all this stuff about new constitutional systems, it's just theory. We should be focusing on practical matters. Well, the issue of how a polity is governed is, I would have thought, the, you know, one of the most practical matters uh, existing. So, you know, this is not just a piece of intellectual and legalistic indulgence. This is about rights and powers and how the different parts of the UK interconnect and don't interconnect. And for that, I suspect, ideally, uh, we need some kind of constitutional makeover. Yeah, that's an, an excellent way of putting it. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. You know, I wonder if you could say this, because it's something I didn't really know about, which is just about the connection between London and Latin America and, and, um, and, and the people who went on to kind of create constitutions there. It was totally new to me. Well, London, I mean, it is a 
seemingly a paradox that given that the UK does not get a modern codified constitution, why is it so important uh, for so many radicals, revolutionaries, dissidents from other parts of the world who spend time in London, who make use of its provisions. And I was particularly concerned to show the importance of this for the South American independence campaigns with so many people like Bolivar spending time in London and so forth. And it may seem strange, but it actually isn't. Partly London is the biggest city in population in the globe, probably by 1820. It's huge. It's rich, the richest city on the globe. Uh, It has the biggest mercantile marine. It has the biggest port in the world. Um, It has the most industrialized printing industry. Uh, On the whole, the police will leave you alone if you're a foreigner, unless you start mucking about in British politics. And so for many dissidents, perhaps coming from places which don't have an advanced printing industry, or perhaps on the run, coming to London as a base of operation or as a place of exile where you can shelter, if you can keep yourself going with money, uh, you can write your texts, and you can then use British vessels, British contacts, British postal systems to transport this stuff to different parts of the globe. So London becomes one of the great centers of revolutionary activism, particularly for South Americans. But, you know, it goes on and on and on. Sun Yat-sen from China, Lenin from Russia, obviously Karl Marx. They're all coming to London. They're all spending time, vast amount of time in the library of the British Museum, uh, where actually the rulings say that uh, no one who is a foreign revolutionary is to be forbidden a space in the reading room. Those rules are made by an Italian radical who has had to take exile in London and gains a post in the British Museum. And he's very keen that it become the library of refuge for foreign dissidents and republicans and reformers amazing um just just a couple of of last questions really and we touched on this earlier and you know i think it's something that's on on the mind of anyone who's interested in american politics and that's that's kind of it's about the durability of these documents the durability or otherwise i mean haiti obviously being another case in point the flip side of that you know the, the question of you know how long the states that are hung around these constitutions endure. And the other side of, of that, you know, I think this is the problem in the US is, is the difficulty of changing long enduring institutions. And, you know, it's, what's the way through this problem? Were, were the people who were writing these constitutions thinking that these are problems, that these are problems they were going to encounter? Well, certainly the founding fathers didn't think about it when they made the federal constitution very, very difficult to amend. They were worried about the opposite. You know, they had a brand new republic. It had only just established itself in a revolutionary war. The country was broke. It was badly divided. So the founding fathers were trying to prevent the constitution from being amended. uh, And they succeeded in many ways far too well. But there's, I think, always a broader issue that to create a new constitution from scratch is very difficult. It takes enormous amounts of time and negotiation. And of course, it's become increasingly difficult with growing democracy because uh, the founding fathers were elite figures. They could hole up in uh, Philadelphia in a building guarded by troops and do their own thing without telling anybody, without being covered by journalists, and then just come up, you know, out at the end, rather like Moses off the mountain and say, 
here we are. We can't do that anymore. You know, you've got to get a certain degree of consensus going, which would not be easy in the United States at the moment. You've got to work out elements of popular consultation. And most politicians won't do this unless they have to. And that's why it's often wars and civil wars and invasions and defeats and so forth that become so important because people don't have any choice. But, you know, even if um, the current prime minister of the UK was desperately keen to create a codified constitution, which he certainly is not, as far as I know, how could he do it? It would be hard. Now, of course, again, if Scotland secedes, then that is what would hope would be a peaceful revolution. And so everyone could get together and say, yes, we're a new independent country. Uh, we've got to have a constitution. But in the normal course of politics, you don't get that sense of need. And since it is such hard work, uh, politicians will usually tend to leave it alone. Mm. I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because in one sense, you know, we do have these kind of re really piecemeal parts of, you know, forms of constitutional reform going on all the time in Britain uh, at the moment. So, you know, for instance, in this legislative term, we're probably going to get a huge restriction on judicial review. That's a constitutional reform. And, and we'll get, uh, you know, they're, they're probably going to ab abolish the, the fixed term Parliaments Act. And that's, you know, it's a really odd piece of constitutional change because it actually reverts prerogative power, you know, formally to the monarch, you know, really executed by the prime minister. But it's a really interesting constitutional change, but it's being done piecemeal rather than thought about systemically. Whereas it, it seems to me that in the United States, you know, constitutional change is obviously blocked at the level of the constitution itself. So you sometimes get these really extraordinary and really creative forms of judicial ruling, which have these kind of really profound effects, you know, they you know, reinterpret the speech clause in the First Amendment or you know, what it means to be a well-regulated militia and whether that clause has any relevance to the right to, to, the right to bear arms. Um, so so you know, it does seem that there's, there are means of constitutional change, but perhaps they're not necessarily the best ones. No, uh, you know, no country has got it completely right. I mean, you know, the Supreme Court in the United States uh, is in many ways, a kind of mini House of Lords and susceptible to partisan manipulation in practice. Now, what you do have is the state constitutions are much easier to amend. And so you get some states using amendments to the state constitutions to bring in, um, you know, quite important changes. But, you know, they're only local. Um, and, you know, gun laws are a classic example where uh, you'll get a state saying, we are really going to tighten up on gun laws here. And then they have a mass killing because somebody has smuggled a gun in from another state. And really, to reform the gun laws in the United States, you know, it has to be federal legislation. Uh, but that's very difficult because uh, you've got a lot of people saying, oh, but what about the Bill of Rights and the right to arms? Forgetting, of course, that when the right of arms was introduced, uh, people had rifles, which took about a minute or so to load. We've got rather different levels of arming now, um, which certainly people in the 1790s did not imagine. Right. I, I was just thinking about the way in which the, the civil rights movement, you know, that they, they use, they use the, the, the commerce clause, you know, obscure clause, the commerce clause to enact what are really, you know, quite fundamental changes to the polity via a kind of, you know, it's almost a backdoor means, the, the use of these clauses. It's a, a creative reinterpretation of the Constitution, partly because, I think partly because going down the kind of straight down the line legislative means would be very, 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 very difficult. Though, I mean, obviously that does also happen. Um, I suppose one of the things that emerges from this conversation is really, is really my last question, which is about the, the contemporary age. In a sense, we've been talking about these kind of singular documents. And one of the things that you, you touch on in the epilogue to the book is that we now live in, in an age of enormous digital proliferation, right? And, and so it can be tempting 
to imagine or to think that we're entering entering a sort of post-constitutional age that's hard to imagine something like the American, you know, like the, the Constitution of the United States being written now. You know, I was sitting just, just before this conversation trying to think about, you know, what I would think as being the most significant constitutional developments in the latter part of the 20th century. And, you know, certainly the European Union has to be one, but it's a very different type of constitutionalism. It's much more arid and, and it's much more functional. It has... You know, much more impersonal in some ways. It has none of the 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 lofty rhetoric or the the sort of democratic aspiration that some of the documents that you talk about has. So, so maybe we can just round off there and think. You know, what 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 you make of the question of the constitution in the current age? It's a small well question. Yeah, just a small matter. How long have you got? Um, I do think the coming of digital, but also you know, the diffuseness now of political information and influences that people respond to. As I say, it's been shown that most Americans, in fact, don't read their constitution. Instead, they are being blitzed by, you know, all sorts of websites and goodness, not all of which are very reputable. And that's a real problem. On the other hand, constitutions retain a special significance because they are legal as well as political texts. In other words, they have a kind of heft which other forms of political information are unlikely to have. You know, I I end the book with the story of Olga Misik, who was then the schoolgirl in Russia, uh, a democracy activist uh, taking part in a protest in Moscow. And she's surrounded by these really burly guys, uh, policemen with batons and so forth. And she planned this ahead. She was clearly bright as well as courageous. Uh, I hope she remains so. And so what she does is she sits down whips out her paperback copy of the Russian constitution and reads out its clauses about the right to protest. And, you know, this is what citizens in Russia can do. Now, I've been criticised by some by saying, oh, Linda, how, how naive. I mean, you know what's happening in Putin's Russia. I mean, you know, how, how, how much freedom do you think they've got? Um, well, It actually wasn't an issue of naivety. It's a matter of hope. And it's a matter of having a text which reminds you what your rights are. And I think that's very important. And if you're lucky, you can uh, get the courts of law to accept that. But if you haven't even got a statement of rights, which is generally circulated, how do you know what those rights are? And I think that's that's perhaps the most powerful question that opponents of constitutional change in the UK need to deal with. Um, It's not just that people can't say anymore how the UK is governed because it's gone so complex and multi-layered, but they don't really necessarily know what their rights are. You know, where's it written down? Well, it's written down in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of parliamentary rulings and legal texts, but, you know, nobody's going to fussock through those unless you're a constitutional lawyer, which most of us are not. So that's why I think one reason why I think constitutions matter. They are single texts. Uh, They are important as reminders and sources of hope. They can be endlessly duplicated and translated and go anywhere. They can have a certain iconic status. Uh, and they can proclaim a country's nature to audiences beyond its boundaries. So in all sorts of ways, constitutions can still do very useful and valuable things, but it requires work and attention and ideally people reading them. That's a fabulous place for us to leave it I think Linda thank you so much it's been a fabulous conversation 
Well, thank you. Uh, and thank you for all your wonderful questions. That's it for this week. My thanks to Linda Colley, whose book, The Gun, The Ship and the Pen, Warfare, Constitutions and the Making of the Modern World is out now from Profile Books. And if you have a rainy few hours this weekend, why not draft a constitution? And why not send me a copy? This has been Navara FM. Stay locked here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I have been James Butler and I will be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye. This broadcast, like all the cornucopia of content you can get at Navara Media, is only possible through the small donations of hundreds of people like you. Join them. Go to navara.media/support. <laughs>